So today we are continuing with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series, and we are continuing with element five. And unfortunately, I'm sorry, Emily, but there's going to be an element 5Z, A, B, C, D, and E <laughs> at this point, because I just can't give up on this subject. So uh, if you look at uh, uh, Roman numeral 1, you'll see the eight elements. We've been on element 5 now for 27 weeks, start counting today. Uh, I've, uh, so... That's why we ran out of letters of the alphabet. There's 26 letters in the English alphabet. So I made last week uh, element, instead of just element Z, I renamed it element ZA, and today is going to be element ZB. If you look at Roman numeral 1, you'll see that we spent the first 20 messages covering the first four elements. If you look at Roman numeral 3, it, it's kind of a summary of the last 26 messages with all the titles. And um, if you'll remember, on the first eight weeks, we uh, looked at the things you would typically study in any church or any uh, uh, Bible college or whatever, any class on, on Christology or the study of Christ. Uh, and if the, the, these will be the kind of things we'll hit on the church history uh, class that we're starting this fall and so forth. But then since then, we've been looking at the ministry of Jesus, often neglected in our day. And it's something that I just wasn't aware of how deeply uh, the, the dispensational, sensationist gospel of today does not see Jesus as actively ongoing doing the same ministry and more that he did in the gospels. And that's why I spent so much time the last couple of weeks on the purposes of Pentecost, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever and a salvation that doesn't involve casting out demons, healing the sick emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. A, a salvation that doesn't include miracles is no salvation at all. It's just not. It's just abstract, theoretical, detached, and it becomes a deception. And the church is supposed to be the spiller... Spiller, the pillar and support of the truth. Don't the church has been the spiller too much? We need to be the pillar in support of the truth. So, uh, if you jump down to Roman numeral four today, we're going to look at we're going to continue on the ministry of Jesus. Um, I was in a hurry, so I kind of made there's a mistake there because today we're actually going to just look at his present reign and principles of his present, past, and, and future judgments. So uh, we are not actually going to look at the second coming of Christ until element. If you go back, if you look at the end, oh, I ran out of space, didn't get the list where we're going. Uh, if you look at the end, uh, it's not there anymore. But we are going to be looking at the second coming of Christ and an introduction to eschatology, hopefully next week. And then I've got a 5D and a 5E. Hopefully I can talk myself out of doing those and, and uh, saving them for when we write a book on it and move because we got to eventually move on to element six. I definitely want to finish this series before Christmas, but I'd like to finish it by, oh, maybe September or so, so that uh, we could get back to the Kingdom of God series next school year with a, once we have a little fuller house. So anyway, just a reminder, Hebrews 3 tells us to consider Jesus. 
It says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a holy calling. Part, we have a heavenly calling. A, 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 we, we have a, an important calling. We're supposed to be doing something. Like modern Christianity, has, you pray the sinner's prayer, and you kind of ask God, what's the minimum I can do to have forgiveness <laughs> and to go to heaven? <laughs> but the whole point of being a Christian is that you're apprehended by God for his ongoing purposes. And that's why Paul, even at the end of his ministry, in, in, in the book of Philippians, one of his last epistles, he says, I press on so that I might apprehend that for which God, Christ, apprehended me. If it's not something you think about, if it's not something that you spend time on, if it's not something you consider regularly and you have active parts of your life where you've made out plans, uh, you know, study habits, what you need to accomplish to become that for which he apprehended you, then I would consider that you really haven't heard the gospel yet. I doubt that you are saved. Because if you look in the New Testament, Luke 5, for example, Acts 9, for example, there is no one who comes to Christ that doesn't get called into his ministry. And if that has not become a passion for you, how can I become a better part of the ministry of the body of Christ in its global mission to take dominion in all the earth, set the captives free, liberate prisoners, bring them captive to the lordship of Jesus Christ so they can be set free from the lordship of sin, Satan, and the world, and, and the wages of sin and death, and the destruction that the world is living in. If, if, you, that, if you're not passionate about that, I would suggest that you're not biblically saved. I really would. I would suggest that you are, you've received the American redu reductionist gospel that says, all I hope for is to be forgiven so I can continue to live how I want to live and be who I want to be. And you haven't met the gospel at all because the gospel is the good news that he wants to set you free from yourself. If you're still your old self, then you're probably not a Christian. A Christian is someone, like Paul said to the Corinthians, are you not walking like mere men? If you live like a mere human being, if you live like you did before you were a Christian and your motivations are the same, you need to cry out to God. Say, God, let the gospel take hold of me. Let me come to know you as Lord, as Master, as Commissioner, as the person who's called me for a holy purpose. Thank God for coffee. Um, already had two cups this morning, but uh, cup number three. Might need another one. Um, so consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's, he's part called us to a, to a calling, and so that word consider is kataneo, and it means to consider attentively, to fix one's eyes or mind upon, to meditate on, to ponder on, think about Jesus. And you th and we want to think about him in particularly in that he's the apostle and high priest of our confession, not just in his ontological trinity aspects, that is his being with the Father and, and his being his uh, incarnation and his humanity and his deity and so forth, what they call the ontological trinity, but then what the economic trinity is, is studying what the ministry of each of the of the three 
what the Father does in relation to the Son and the Spirit, what the Spirit does in relation to the Father and the Son, what the ongoing purpose and ministry of Jesus is. That's what you're called into as a Christian. And so it's become a a major problem in modern Christianity that not enough attention is given to the ministry of Jesus. Because if you don't know what the ministry of Jesus is, uh, how are you supposed to enter in? It's almost like if you, if a kid likes sports and he's playing in Little League and all those kind of CYO basketball and all these kind of little things, uh, it would probably help him to watch, maybe not the NBA, that kind of might give him the bad habits. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, maybe, maybe watch some college basketball or watch uh, the baseball, how it's supposed to be played, and maybe study, uh, you know, the game's theory and so forth. Uh, because so he can see, yeah, this is what we're shooting for. The reason we consider the ministry of Jesus is because we should be saying, what am I doing to get there? How are we, as a community, proposing to get there? How are we going to have more healings in our midst? How are we going to have more prophecies in our midst? How are we going to get more people effective at leading people to Christ? and walking them through the EPDC evangelism in the real biblical complete conversion sense, pastoral care in the sense that, that if you come in Christ and you're reconciled to God, then you should become emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically healthier all the time because the, the source of your problems is, is sin and not being reconciled to God. So when you become one with God, your life should start to get it, it together in every way. Discipleship is the D in the EPDC, means training and and equipping so that you can be fruitful and effective. C is is continuum. You've walked someone through that when they're making disciples effectively. And when they're E, fully converted, evangelism, uh, not, not American converted. P, pastorally cared for. That is, they're healthy, whole, their marriage is good, their finances are good, their vocation is good, their approach to academics is good, their conflict resolution skills are are mature and excellent. That's what the gospel should bring you to, pastoral care, becoming whole. And finally, discipleship, training, equipping, becoming a, a, a ninja warrior or Jedi Master, or what you know, whatever you want to, you know, learning how to wield the sword of God's Spirit uh, powerfully and effectively to set people free. If you needed to cast out demons, could you do it? If someone was uh, falsely converted, could you discern that and help them become really converted? If they'd received an Americanized, sugar-coated, gospel sweetened just the way you like it, fortified with nine essential blessings and tailored especially for the hedonist, narcissistic, me generation, could you help them be liberated from that? Could you help them discern the difference between that and the real gospel of Jesus Christ? So that's why we're doing this series, and that's why it's taken so long. You, you got to, you know, you got to take these outlines home, and you got to go over them, and you got to read the scriptures, and you got to think about them. So, now, uh, 
with that in mind, I just I actually kind of just wanted to say that we would be justified in having a permanently ongoing series on Christology. In other words, if, if I'm just going to stay on this for the rest of your life, that would be okay. Many facets of Jesus could be delved into more deeply than we're doing even in this. Uh, we're probably going to end up at 28 or to 30 parts on Jesus. But we, we touched on his priesthood, his prophethood, and king, but we could focus on those in, uh, now, obviously, for instance, when we looked at the atonement, we're looking at part of his priestly ministry. Today, we're going to look at some ongoing aspects of his current priestly ministry. Uh, you know, we could, of course, look at him as the apostle of our confession and, um, and what is ongoing. We've, and, and we have done that when we've, when we've had teachings about continuationism and his ongoing ministry. Uh, we could look at him as the king of the Jews and the king of all creation, which we have done when we've talked about his present reign. But we could categorize our thoughts more along those kind of lines, like his offices. We could do a survey of the whole Gospels. We could do a whole series. Once I did a series on 55 or so word pictures of Jesus. We did some of that when we looked at, the, when we looked at all the I am sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John. But really, I just, I kind of, I'm just trying to make the point that even though I've been on this 27 weeks, what I've mostly done, if you listen to all these messages if you, with the outlines and you study them, I've given you a great starting point to grow in your considering of Jesus the rest of your life. Isn't that awesome? When, I mean, I couldn't give you a better gift for Christmas than a good starting point to grow in your consideration of Jesus for the rest of your life. Um, we could look more at the apostolic and inductive use of, Christ, of studying Christ in the New Testament employed by the apostles as they study the Old Testament. We could John's Christ in the Old Testament series, which I believe was either 15 or 16 messages, what he was just doing there was giving you an introduction in how to find Christ in the Old Testament. He gave 15 or 16 examples of word pictures of Christ in the Old Testament and of types of Christ and foreshadowings of Christ so that you could learn to look for hundreds of them. All right, so I gave a, some recommendations there. One is to read and reread the Gospels. Uh, I meant to get a quote from Tom Wright who's, I guess uh, N.T. Wright is going more and more by Tom Wright. So you probably need to know if you're a book person that sometimes you'll see books written by N.T. Wright and his middle name is Tom. So now more and more you're seeing them written by Tom Wright. Apparently he's trying to uh, make that more his well-known name. But in any case, uh, How God Became King, Getting to the Heart of the Gospels, was probably the best Christmas present I've had in years. I read that during the Christmas season of 2013, I guess it was. Uh, there's some other great books listed there. My wife just finished reading The Four, A Survey of the Gospels by Peter Lightheart. My wife would tell you anything by Peter Lightheart is great. She's now reading his 700-page commentary on the book of Daniel called The Handwriting on the Wall, right? Oh, that's James Jordan. Sorry. Your other guy. All right. That's her two guys, Peter Lightheart and James Short. Um, and they are friends, so my bad. Confuse them. Uh, so, so we gave you some books there. All right, so let's get into today's material, the ministry of Jesus, his present reign.
Got about a half hour left, so let's hopefully we can get there. And then I'm hoping to get to at least some aspects of his present, past, and future judgments. Uh, which, uh, I again, I was hurrying through the material and kind of reorganized it in as I went, and I just ran out of time. I feel like the coach, there, there's a... I, I can't remember who said this, but there once was a famous coach when being interviewed said, well, we never really lost any games. We just ran out of time. So, <laughs> so I uh, feel like, a little bit like that this morning. So let's look a little bit at this whole idea of the present reign of Christ. Obviously, we've been talking during this whole ministry section for, uh, I guess, 18 or so weeks now about the continuing ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus you see in the Gospels is is continuing, and there's actually been more fulfilled aspects of it in his ascension, glorification, in his present reign at the Father's right hand. And he reigns by the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, here are some things. Last week I looked at Luke 1 there that um, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, last week I did not capitalize or put in bold the word end and underline it, so I thought I would talk about that word for a minute. The, the Greek word there is the word telos. It's the same word we've talked about many times with Romans 10.4. When, when Paul says Christ is the telos, or the end of the law. Uh, and so he's the purpose, he's the fulfillment. So when it says there will be no end to the increase, he's not talking about just time. Okay? He's talking about his reign will expand in every area of human endeavor until it fills the whole earth, until it fills the economies of the earth until it fills the educational systems of the earth, until it fills the political systems of the earth, until it fills the way of life for every family and every tribe and every nation of people in the earth. And that, not just hoping that you will be forgiven so you can do the minimum Christian life and and hopefully go to heaven, that is what you're called to be about. You're about. You're called to be ex- declaring and expanding the crown rights of Jesus into every field of human endeavor, music, education, etc. When it uses that, uh, when he draws upon the Old Testament to talk about his throne of David, that should make you think of uh, Isaiah nine seven, which we read every year at Advent, and I and is is listed there. Here's what you should think of with the throne of David, if you don't understand. God promised David that he would always have a seed to sit on his throne, right? And just like Abraham was promised a seed, and Isaac was a foreshadowing of that seed, Solomon and some of the other kings of Jerusalem were a foreshadowing of that, but the promise was always about Christ. Okay? So the Isaac is just a foreshadowing. That's why when God calls Abraham 
to sacrifice his son. It's a, and he does it on Mount Moriah where the temple would eventually be built. Uh, he, uh, he, his calling, it's a foreshadowing or a type or a picture, but he doesn't let him go through with killing his son. And when Isaac says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? He says, the Lord himself will be the sacrifice. Engl- most English translations get it wrong. Look, consult a Jewish translation on that. Because he's not just saying the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. He's saying the Lord himself the sacrifice. So uh, this, with David, one of the, what you need to understand to understand that verse is uh, what David's kingdom was a foreshadowing of. Remember that God promised Abraham He said to look as far as he could see and then as far as he could see would be all of that would be given to him. And so in the old covenant we see uh the people of God through Abraham that would become events through Isaac and then Jacob who becomes Israel would reign over what today is called Israel or was Canaan land or at that time and has been called Palestine at times and so forth. But as John has taught us many times, hopefully you know this point of John's by now, that is a foreshadowing of what the gospel really is saying in Genesis 1 and forward. All of that is symbolic of that his reign will be from shore to shore, from sea to sea, from the north to the east to the south to the west. His reign will fill the whole earth. And so what we see in David is a prophetic foreshadowing because from the time of Abraham until the time of David, even Moses, the great giver of the covenantal law and so forth, and the great prophet who prophesied the sanctions that would come on Israel and the final judgment of Israel in Deuteronomy 27 and 8 and and hands it off to Joshua, Jesus, and, and Joshua, Jesus begins to give them the promised land and so forth. Guess what? In the point of the book of Joshua is very clear. They didn't take all the land. There were still lots of enemies and lots of Canaanites. And that's a foreshadowing of the, of the ministry of our real Joshua, Jesus. And in fact, in the time of the next book, the Judges, we go through a very similar period in Israel to what America has gone through. America, the last great move of God that really affected our culture was 20 years before our war for independence. And our culture's been declining in terms of Judeo-Christian things since then. With some occasional stirrings here and there, but not what God has in mind. And Judges was a 400-year period of backsliding as, as West, all of Europe and the United States and Canada and so forth has gone through since the 1700s. However, God in, in David foreshadowed what God intends to do, and that is David, in the time of David, they finally took all the land for the first time. And the boundaries of Israel, for the first time, were what they were promised to Abraham. They'd never been that before. They were never fu- that was never fulfilled until David. 
And in the time of David and in the time of Solomon, the surrounding nations began to pay tribute to Israel instead of Israel paying tribute to the surrounding nations as they did in their declining years from the time of David until the first exile. And they stayed in bondage to the other nations all the way through the time of Christ. So what David is a foreshadowing of is that the ministry of the son of David will fill the whole earth as the as the you know the knowledge of God will cover the seas and so all that from sea to shining sea and all that kind of stuff and that eventually the body that all the enemies of Christ will be put underneath his feet and his body and that's why every false religion has a false promise of this kind of thing. That's why people who send their kids to secular schools are making a big mistake because secular humanism is a complete religion and all religions claim total obedience to their worldview and their ideas. And the goal of the public education system is to disciple your kids out of Christ. No Christian should let this parent, their kids go to a public school. And I don't care what it costs to homeschool. Sell your house and get a cheaper one so you can afford to send your kids to a Christian school. Why? Because all, all claims of religion are absolute. Now, the, the uh, George Bushes and the Obamas of this world would tell you that Islam is a religion of peace. Because they use the word peace. And it's a Middle Eastern form like shalom. But you need to read the, the, the devil's always in the details, so to speak. What do they mean by peace? What they mean by peace is when the Christians and the, and the, Muslims, and the uh, Jews are all submitted to Allah. And where the, the Muslim people reign in every place over the Christians and the Jews, and the Christians and Jews are re reduced to paying heavy taxes and, and being subservient and keeping the most common labor, such as you know making bricks or something, but not taking any serious jobs like being an engineer or a doctor or anything like that. That's what, that's what peace means in Islam. So, uh, and every religion is a total system. When the Nazis, who were a religion, took over, they had churches, and uh, they, they turned the schools into the churches of the new religion. Believe me, the, the religion of humanism, their church is the school. That's their catechism and their Sunday school class. And they're after your kid's soul, mind, heart, and values. They are making him into a disciple of Antichrist. That's the purpose of public schools. So this thing about uh, he'll have the throne of David is basically saying that the Christ will reign over from, from one corner of the earth to another in his reign, what his word peace means is reconciliation to God, forgiveness 
justification and a new nature made in, in likeness of your creator that wants to do his law and wants to please him. Not conversion with a sword from the outside in, and if you don't obey, we'll chop your head off as in Islam. But conversion with the sword of the spirit that kills your old nature to, so that your new nature can grow and thrive and you can become the person you were always created to be in the first place before sin took you over and dominated you and destroyed your life. It's the gospel of liberation. And it's a king that rules by love instead of by force, as all other kingdoms do. In the Nazi regime, if you didn't go along, you went to the camps. In the Soviet regime, bought a book this week by our good friend Merrick, who's a uh, who's uh, the leader of the ARC in, in, the, in Poland, and there's a bunch of churches and guys there, and he's, had, he's done an incredible work. But his father was a Pentecostal preacher in Poland who the, who the uh, Russians sent to the gulag. And he, and he lived in the gulag and loved and served Christ there. So, uh, because all systems are total. Well, I didn't mean to get into that that much. But you need if you don't understand what any if if like you didn't understand 100% of what I just said then it's probably a good thing I just got in. Okay. He will ha have the throne of his father David. He's the king. And he's the not just the king of your spiritual life. Matthew 28, Jesus says the same thing. All authority, not some. You know my joke that I compared the Greek words and studied the Greek word for all, and I found out that all means all. All authority, not, guess what? He's the boss of your boss. He's the boss of... Presidents, kings, prime ministers, and so forth. He raises up nations and tears down nations. He blesses nations in accordance to their obedience with his will, including having no false gods. If nations have false gods, they are reaping judgment upon themselves. And unlike Allah, he doesn't need an army with real swords. He needs an army with swords of the Spirit to help people get liberated from the consequences But he is a king and he is a judge. And he has all authority, not just in heaven, but look at that phrase, on the earth. That's why the, the Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's your goal as a Christian. And, and whatever sphere of the earth, do you have a house that you rent or, or own? Can you say the, 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 the kingship of Jesus Christ is coming into more and more areas of this house? The way I'm raising my kids, my marriage, the way I handle my finances, the spirit that's in this house. Is the spirit that's in this house increasingly the power of the Holy Spirit apart from demonic spirits? That's what thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven should mean for your marriage, for your finances, for your study habits as a student. 
Have I become the student God wants me to become? Which would start with becoming a much more diligent student of his whole word. Because it's the foundation for all of their studies. I wish I could go into a lot of these verses I've listed at the, after Matthew 28. Romans 1, 1 through 7, I wish I could go into the whole thing. But he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Let's flip over. I've got to keep moving. 1 Corinthians 15, I wish I could go into all of that chapter. There's a concept called the locus classicus in theology. And that is that the idea that whatever is a major topic in Scripture will usually have either one or two places that it's most directly talked about, and that's where you start to build your theology of it. So the locus classicus of the resurrection has, uh, in a sense, two places. One is the last chapters of all four of the Gospels. And the other is 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the Gospels, for the most part, tend to focus on the fact of the resurrection and a little bit on the, and on the ongoing implications and their being commissioned to, to continue the crown rights of King Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 goes into the theology or purpose of the resurrection, and there's a few things I want to point our attention to. First of all, if... If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Other alternate translations, empty, void, worthless. Look for the, that concept all through the whole chapter. Okay? Because what he's contrasting is this. Apart from knowing Christ and knowing the power of his resurrection and living out of the power of his resurrection and, his, and living for his continuing ministry, then life is worthless. And he goes so far as to say, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may diet. That's my little twist. <laughs> uh, we might die. You know, in other words, I, I, I sometimes say to people, only when the Holy Spirit's really moving strong in the present, when we're talking about the gospel, to my eyes, say, if you're not going to follow Jesus with your whole life, you probably should kill yourself. Because <laughs> there's no purpose to be here on this planet. I think that's why zombie movies are so popular, because it, you know, the world is a bunch of dead people without souls trying to walk around. Trying to find some reason other than the fact that God has put the fear of death in every man. So even though they they try to smoke themselves to death, eat themselves to death, lazy themselves to death, and everything else, because all those who hate wisdom love death, and all fallen men are trying to kill themselves. But they're a little scared to pull the trigger because they know that they've been given the fear of death. Deep down in their spirit, they know something would be wrong if they died. But that's a long way from finding real purpose. And the purpose is in the resurrection. And the implication of the resurrection is he must reign. That is, all the things we're talking about, his current, present reign. Until he has put all enemies under his body, the church. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The reason I threw that in there 
is simply this. If you, if you know anything about the fundamentalist-modernist controversy that came out in the oh, approximately 1870s, although some of it started in the 1830s in a few areas, but really gathered momentum after the Civil War in America, and so that all of Christianity changed dramatically from 1890 to 1930. The modernists, in particular, don't believe that the Bible's inerrant, they don't believe Jesus really rose from the dead. They believe that, that faith, uh, the, the faith that Jesus rose from the dead somehow occurred to the disciples, apart from the actual fact of it. And Paul is saying that's ri- ridiculous. And the Bible talks about that men, hold, men who hold to a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, and, and first, the first most important power is the power of his resurrection, it says, avoid such men as these. That's what most Roman Catholic churches teach, and that's what the entire, main, what they call mainstream Protestantism teaches, and all of modern Eastern Orthodoxy teaches. If they don't believe in the virgin birth, if they don't believe in the incarnation of Christ, if they don't believe in the resurrection, if they don't believe in the attesting miracles of Jesus, don't be going to their schools. Don't hang out with them. Don't go to their churches. And don't even throw the tag Christian on them. Now, with regard to the fundamentalists and modernists, they believe in all that. Or that is, yeah, the fundamentalist modernist. They're both two different types of modernists. And the evangelical modernists, they believe in all that, but they don't believe it's ongoing and continuing. They believe it's ceased with the apostles. And the Bible actually says avoid those people too. Now, I personally believe that in both those camps... There's lots of people who the Spirit of God, if you've ever gone through our theology s- series, R.C. Sproul actually has a very, one, one of his better messages, is on how people can hear the words of the gospel and be converted, and they could even do so in a Mormon church or some, some false religion or something, possibly. There's you know uh, Muslims that testify to having dreams of Jesus and so forth. There are lots of people caught up in those churches that need you to set them free. So I'm, you know, like Paul, when Paul says, when I told you not to hang around these kind of people, I didn't mean not to hang around those kind of people of the world because, uh, but any so-called brother don't, I, I'm not going to acknowledge their Christianity. But I am going to acknowledge whatever spark of Christ has, has maybe penetrated them and so forth and bring them, if there's any life there at all, bring them out. That's really what we do as a church. We bring uh, people who've been raised up in the American Christian uh, environment into a real full conversion and a real full calling and really understanding the kingdom of God and, and what the church is and so forth. Well, if you understand that he must reign until he's put his enemies underneath his feet, then the last verse, I love the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, 58. As a result of what I've said in the whole chapter, 
Therefore, be steadfast, immovable. Nothing should be able to get you off of that purpose and focus and that drive every day. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not void, worthless, empty. Remember in the Old Testament, the concept of the son, of a, they called a worthless fellow in some English translations, and but the literal means a son of Baal or son of Belial. Like, in other words, someone who hasn't been set free to following the right king is living a life that's worthless. We get all freaked out when unbelievers act like unbelievers. But as the world grows, as the church grows more impotent, the, the, the sin and the demonic spirits in the world system grow more prevalent and they press the implications of their fallen nature further. Don't be surprised that they live like pagans. And don't be, oh my God, I can't talk to that guy because he's got this big sin. Set them free. Whatever the implication is. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord. Work until you can't work anymore. Then take a nap and then work again. Study till your eyes go buggy. God has given me this great relationship with this uh, doctor who's originally from India. She's a, but she's an eye doctor. And the thing we're working on is, I like Kindle books, you know. I like to read because uh, I can highlight and put notes and things that won't fade out and, and be lost. All my notes in this, one of my favorite Bibles here, the notes are all fading away. <laughs> So I'm hoping to I'm hoping to have notes that'll last for a lot longer. But uh, after six or eight hours, my eyes start going so buggy I can't see anymore, and I start getting blurry and everything like that. And uh, you know, so go do something else for the Lord. But have you ever studied till you just can't study anymore? If you haven't, I'm sorry for you. Have you ever have you ever gone out sharing and pastoral care and witnessed and taught people and, and discipled them until you just get so exhausted that you just can't don't know if you can rally for another hour? I would to God that all of you would live like that. That's what Paul's saying. He's not saying if you're an apostle or a pastor or a teacher. There's nothing like that in here. He's saying, if you believe in the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, I don't want to fall into today, to today's pietism. Your job is part of your work for the Lord. So you need to change your job. You're not doing it to get climb the corporate ladder. You're not doing it to have a better television and a cooler monster truck. You're doing it to serve the Lord. You're doing it as unto Christ, right? This is how I have the resources. You know what? I I was never was able to keep the top salesman in the company I worked for, but when I was out of the ministry, I became the second best salesman in a company of about 12 salesmen. Why? 
because I needed enough money to send my kids to the best Christian schools. That's why. And because the Bible says that if anyone doesn't provide for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. So I'm not talking about like your own, like you should just, all, all there is is prayer meetings, reading the word, and going out and sharing the gospel. But you need to rethink everything you do in light of, is, is, is this steadfast and movable? Am I abounding in the work of the Lord? Is that why I study engineering or politics or law? Or is that why I do this or that? Do I do it for the kingdom of God and the glorification of Jesus Christ? Well, maybe next week there will be a element 5ZC, and the one that I had in mind for C will have to move to D because I didn't get at all into the judgments of Christ. Christ is a judge, and he's a judge every day. And there are no New Testament uh, presentations of the gospel that don't bring out that Jesus is the judge, even though that's never talked about in the gospel today. We'll see that next week.